It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. This is Cork Today Today with Patricia Messenger on C103. And a very good morning to you as we welcome you along to Wednesday's edition of the programme with John Paul taking your calls at 1850-333-103. And let's start by congratulating the Rose of Tralee for this year. She is the she was the Limerick Rose, Sinead Flanagan, and she's now been named 2019 Rose of uh, Tralee. She is a junior doctor. She actually works in Mallow. General Hospital. She had qualified as a physiotherapist at the University of Limerick and then she went on to do another four years to qualify as a doctor at the University College in Cork. And she was absolutely stunning on stage. And I have to say the green dress she was wearing was just and it suited her so well the colour was beautiful but the detail on the dress it really was quite uh, exquisite and I'm delighted to say that we are hoping fingers crossed that we're going to be able to talk with her at about 20 past 12 today now she obviously is a very busy morning that first morning after you win the Rose of Trudy it's just a kind of a whirlwind of different interviews and press commitments that she has to do so we've booked in a slot and we'll keep our fingers crossed that we will be able to, to so she will be able to take some time out to, to talk to her purely just to say congrats to her and uh, to say well she's over the border and she is from Limerick we're very much claiming her as one of our own and I thought the story because her mum is Ballyhay I thought the story from her mum on the news there with Barry how in the end of August in 1991 when her mum was pregnant and about to give birth to uh, Sinead she was getting legally pains but she was sitting down watching the Rose of Chile and she wanted to watch uh, she wanted to watch the Rose of Chile for her and off to the hospital and she managed to do it and it was the night that Denise Murphy was crowned Rose of Chile she was the Cork Rose that year in 1991 so the Rose of Chile has very much featured, I imagine, in Sinead's life uh, growing up. I thought that was a lovely, lovely story from her mother. But congratulations. And as I say, and and I'm sure all of the staff at Mallow General Hospital must be absolutely thrilled for Sinead's uh, win, as indeed are all the good people of Limerick. I know already I saw Anthony Pickford from Limerick, one of our Limerick listeners who regularly text the programme was on to say well done to the Limerick Rose of uh, Tralee so there will be much celebration going on in Limerick for uh, sure Uh, and she was it seems a very popular win because I was only reading yesterday before she even went out on stage last night the bookies had 
her topped to win. She was the bookies' favourite. She was before the show even started yesterday. She was six to four on uh, to win. So it looks like the bookies certainly got this one uh, right. As I say, we will speak with uh, hopefully speak with Sinead. Uh, later on when was Lister says when was the Limerick Rose on I want to watch it on on the player she was on later it was after the news she wasn't on in the no she was on towards the end of the first section heading into the news at 9 o'clock if you know what I mean because John Paul was just making the point this morning that she didn't seem to get a lot she didn't seem to get as much time as some of the other roses did and I was saying that could have been purely just for timeout reasons because it was coming up to the uh, 9 o'clock news and I know it hasn't gone up online like on YouTube you can certainly see a number of websites have put up Dahi O'Shea making the announcement that she's won but her actual interview herself certainly wasn't up this morning on any of the sites that I saw but yes you will be able to get it on the, the player but you just don't want to kind of I know you're thinking you don't want to sit and watch the whole thing you just want to see her beautiful green dress she really will stand out if you're fast forwarding uh, through it so Rose Tralee will get covered on the programme uh, today we're also by the way going to discuss litter on the programme and in particular looking at litter on our beaches because the latest eyeball beach survey coastal surveys out I'm sure this is the second only the second year that they've done it and it wasn't good news for Cork not one of the sites that they went to survey in Cork was deemed clear clean they found litter in every single site on our beaches which is truly shocking and shocking when you think we haven't had the best of summers you you know if it was after a very dry period you might say because you know everybody heads to the beach when we've got fine weather and you will always have some people who just have no disregard for the beach and they'll bring whatever they need to bring with them and, and they'll leave it behind majority of people are I think are very very good about cleaning up after themselves but we've just got to get through to everyone that you need to keep our beaches clean and if you are out walking on the beach I think that it was it started a while ago that habit they were trying to get people into that if you just pick up three pieces if everybody going for a walk on a beach picks up three pieces of plastic or litter that, that you see if we all do our little bit to help we will certainly get our beaches cleaner but we'll talk with Eyeball about it but Eyeball when they first started out in 2002 would you believe was when they first started the Litter League surveys in our towns and villages now they were shocking the first few surveys were really bad for, for a lot of areas but by highlighting it and drawing attention to the fact that people were living in a dirty town or in a dirty village. It spurred people in into action. And now we know when we have the results of the Litter League survey for the towns and villages, you know, we talk about figures of 80% of our towns and villages being clean to European standards, which is terrific. We never could have, could have seen that that happening back in 2002 when they first started. So hopefully, hopefully, the same thing will happen with the coastal surveys keep highlighting it, keep pointing out the areas that need improvement and hopefully one day we'll be doing interviews saying 80% of the coastal areas surveyed were cleaned to European norms. But let me stay on litter for a moment because there's a couple of postings went up on Facebook highlighting litter, particularly at bring sites. On Monday, Cloyne Tidy Towns put up a picture of their bottle banks and there are 
two closed banks there as well. And Cloyne Tidy Towns said they didn't want to sugarcoat the post because it is what it is. And they say this is well and truly the worst the recycling area has been. It's ignorance and laziness on people who did this because uh, they didn't want to bring back their bottles with them because it's very obvious when you look at the picture that all of the bottle banks are full. So at the foot then of the bottle banks you have boxes and bags and boxes and bag loads of empty bottles and cans and I don't know if there's household rubbish in the middle of it as well because what I have the copy I have is a black and white photograph so I'm assuming people just came along they had done all the recycling at home came to go to the brink site oh whoops the brink site is full sure I'll just leave my box of bottles here no don't leave your box of bottles bring them back I know it's a pain in the ass that you've got to make the journey again but leaving it in that condition and all it takes I think is one person to leave one bag of bottles or one box of cans and then everybody else that pulls up oh sure they've done it it must be okay to do it and then you end up with a sorry sorry sight that somebody from Cloyne Tidy Towns obviously took that photograph off and put it up on their Facebook page now seemingly I haven't seen the, the, the full Facebook thread But the majority of people who were commenting were saying that those bottle banks need to be emptied more. So is that the solution? Do we need to make it as easy for people who go to the bother of recycling at home and going along to the Brink site? Do we need to make sure that when they arrive at the Brink site that the bottle banks are empty so that they are able to put their bottles and their cans uh, in? But failing that, how do we get the message through to people that if it isn't emptied enough, can you just bring them home and wait until it is? So maybe there's, there's responsibility there on both half both sides. And then Councillor Eileen Lynch put up a piece on her Facebook page about the Coachford Bring site. And she said after a few incidents of rubbish being dropped by the recycling bins in Coachford rather than putting in rather than putting them into the bins, they've been she's been working with the waste enforcement section of the county council to try to have it resolved. CCTV was installed last year, she writes in her Facebook post. But there were no detections last year of illegal dumping. She said there is there is more to be installed to the CCTV on a temporary mobile basis in the coming weeks and efforts will be made to resolve any illegal dumping under the anti-dumping initiative. Coach Fish, she said, is lucky to have fantastic volunteers who work tirelessly to keep the village in good shape and it's very disappointing when people litter and leave their waste uh, around. Um, so Coachford Bringside seems to seems to have a problem as well. But then, you know, whenever we mention a particular bottle bank, we will always get somebody else to ring up and say our bottle bank is the same. It's an ongoing saga. So the solutions, I mean, we need to, they need to be emptied and emptied regularly. Do we need to permanently install CCTV with big warning signs to people that there's CCTV in operation. If you leave behind your bottles or your cans, you will be caught on camera and you will be fined and prosecuted. I mean, do you see Councillor Eileen Lynch state in her Facebook post that CCTV was installed last year and there was no detections of uh, illegal uh, dumping proving that the CCTV uh, is working. Now, I don't know where they were installed. It mustn't have been at the recycling bins, but maybe all of our recycling bins, if we want them to work and work properly, maybe that's the way we've got to go. We have to put in CCTV and then when people are caught, do we then have to 
immediately go after them and, pro- and prosecute them and find them. 1850 We are also hoping to have I'm slow to say definite confirmation of when Mallow Bridge reopens but we're, we're certainly going to have an update on how long more it's going to be closed and can we deduce from that the date of when it is actually going to reopen uh, I know Mary's already been on saying uh, Patricia in Mallow at the moment and driving in over the bridge not a problem at all with traffic now this would have been a 10 to 10 Mary sent me in this uh, WhatsApp people just need to be patient and leave on time yeah 10 to 10 you're probably okay at that stage you've missed the school run, you've certainly missed the early morning traffic run with people getting to work but I mean, go back there again in the evening time. Any time from probably about half four on, the traffic really starts to build and it has been a nightmare. The schools have started slowly to reopen. I think tomorrow probably all of the schools in Mallow will have reopened. I don't know yet with the ones that have reopened what kind of traffic delays there has been around school times but I imagine there has been various gridlocks uh, along the way but as I say we are hoping to get confirmation on the programme today of when the Mallow Bridge will finally reopen and that certainly will alleviate you're still going to have traffic delays particularly around school times but hopefully that will completely uh, alleviate the gridlock that's there in the morning and the evenings particularly out on the bypass and heading into the roundabout because everyone has to head that way if you want to get across the bridge. Also on the programme this morning we're going to speak with the Simon community. They are highlighting and talking about the abuse that some rough sleepers are getting from drunk people as they come out of pubs and clubs and God knows if you are sleeping rough in a doorway or on a park bench or you have a little bit of cardboard down under you somewhere where you're hoping you're going to get some kind of shelter from the rain, for example, or cold, the last thing you need are people who think it's a bit of crack and a bit of fun. Let's abuse the person in the sleeping bag lying in the doorway. Would people ever cop on? Go out and enjoy yourself. Have your few drinks. But when you finish in the pubs and the nightclubs, just go home and leave the homeless person alone unless you're in a position to do something to help them out but abusing them really, really. Uh, Also on the programme today worrying news from Cove Community Hospital. Now this came out this week from the INMO the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. They are claiming the Cove Community Hospital I think they say they reckon they have five weeks of funding left for this year and we are into the end of August, which would five weeks of funding would take us through September and into the first week of October. What does it mean if it runs out of funding? How does a community hospital end up in a situation with three months left of the year that they run out of uh, funding? That would be such a loss to the Cove area and particularly to the families of the residents who live there, who, you know, who visit them on weekly basis. I mean, if they get moved into an area further away, it's going to put huge, huge difficulty on families trying to go to visit their loved ones. Loved ones. So we're trying to find out more about that. We're also going to share the story of uh, a little known Cork man 
who discovered, it seems, Antarctica. He's a man that we should all know. The name Edward Bransfield should be up there with Shackleton, should be up there with Tom Crane. And it's not for some reason, but there's a group, a local group have come together to say, right, we need to do something about this. We need to get the message out about who Edward Bransfield uh, was. And there's a big plan to erect a monument in Ballinacorra, where he was originally from. I think it's on the two, I know it's down for next year, 2020, which I think it's the 200th anniversary of something. I know whether it's his, it's his birth, maybe. Anyway, we're going to find out more about him. We'll hear more about Edward uh, Bransfield on the programme uh, today. And it's Wednesday. What does that mean? Peter Dowdell will join us answering all of your gardening uh, questions. Well done to the Limerick Rose on her win. Uh, it was so nice and well deserved. Nice to see Limerick get a win again. And she actually went to school with Love Island's Greg O'Shea. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. There you go. Um, someone else says, Jack in Ballyhay says, congratulations to Sinead. If her mother is from Ballyhay, then certainly we can claim her as one of our own here in Cork. I didn't catch her mother's name, says uh, Jack. I should know her if she's from Ballyhay because Jack is from Ballyhay. Her mother is Catherine, Podrick and Catherine. But obviously she's Catherine Flanagan. When she was in Ballyhay, she would have been Catherine. I don't know. So I know somebody from Ballyhay must know Sinead Flanagan's mother, Catherine, a native of Ballyhay. What was her maiden name? Because Jack in Ballyhay is trying to work out does he know her uh, or not? And you probably wouldn't know her as her married name. You'd know her by her maiden name. If we find out, Jack, we'll pass up the information on to you. 1850-333-103. Uh, we're taking a break. Coming up next, we're going to speak with the Simon community about the abuse that some rough sleepers get from drunk people coming out of pubs and clubs. Flora Gelga, RC 103. But a Neil Armstrong on Kay Dena a Hule Erangilak. Ruguk a Er on Kugu La de Lunasa, Nade Trucker, at Ohio. Kugur a V Saklonage. V Dul Morage, son Ettelt, or V Shay in a Vukul Og. Agus Hussig Shaykh Ettelt nor a V Shay, Shave Lean Day Dish. Kuig Shay La Nasa Corp Sposera, Agus Rauniuk a in Sundara Grupa, in Nade Chaskado. Dimig Apollo 11, er hrus krig angelak, er an sheu la deg duel ne deg shaskade. Vi buzz aldrin, agus mihal o klan in the hientas sasvaslo. Hog she ni smona she or krig an trus krig angelak a yin. Nur hurling an sposlung er angelak, but a Neil Armstrong an ke dinna a huel er angelak. Lesh fuckle amrotica. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Le Blura Grilga is Misha Jack Derosha o Grilskal Hamosh Dovish. CK Asa 3 Kirkig. C103 and Cork Volunteer Centre presents the very first Cork Volunteer Awards taking place Friday, October 11th. These awards aim to celebrate and recognise remarkable people throughout Cork who selflessly give their time and talent to benefit local communities. Visit volunteercork.ie now and shine a light on your volunteers by nominating them for an award. The Cork Volunteer Awards 2019 at the Kingsley Hotel with Cork Volunteer Centre, Cork Independent and Cork's Greatest Hits, C103. 
Cork today on C103. Call Patricia with your comment. 1850-333-103. Now, it's tough enough to be a rough sleeper, but according to Cork's Simon community, many rough sleepers face a barrage of abuse from drunk people coming out of pubs and nightclubs. Paul Sheen of Cork's Simon campaign uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, and, you, and you're welcome. Is this type of abuse new or have rough, rough sleepers always had to contend with drunken people? No, it's not new. It's something that comes up from time to time when we do any kind of research or, or surveys amongst people using our services. And that's one of the more common things that comes up in terms of, of the challenges that people face when, when they end up sleeping on the street. Um, and quite usually it's, you know, after the pubs close, after the night clubs close and, um, you know, all sorts of, of abuse from verbal abuse, from rare cases, some physical assault. But, you know, um, any of it is degrading by any means. And it's just drunk people thinking this is funny and she will have a go at the drunk or with the homeless man in the sleeping bag. Yeah, for, mo- for the most part, yes. You know, I presume uh, people are up to hijinks, um, spirits are running high and um, quite often it's, it's the vulnerable person sleeping on the street that uh, bears the brunt of it. Is it true you've had reports of, of homeless people being urinated on? Yes, um, oh. people have said this. Um, it's something that they have experienced. And I suppose it was in the context of, you know, how people who are sleeping rough perceive themselves. Um, and quite often they say, you know, they're invisible. Uh, nobody looks at us. Nobody takes any notice of us. Um, you know, it's as if we weren't there. And then at night time, you know, when, when the nightclubs and the pubs close, you get the other end of the, the, the stick. My God. My God. And is the, this type of abuse, is it aimed at both male and female rough sleepers, Paul? Well, we haven't looked at that really, Patricia, but I would be surprised if it uh, didn't impact both. And I think, you know, women sleeping rough would often uh, talk about the fear of, you know, not being able to get a night's sleep, the fear of having to sleep with one eye open for fear of any potential sexual assaults or They're any very sexual vul- advances. They are yeah. very, very uh, vulnerable. And, and how many people end up sleeping rough in, in Cork on any one night? Oh, it varies from night to night, Patricia. I have to say, you know, over the last 12 months or so, we've seen the numbers drop. And that's simply because more emergency beds have been put into the system. But as as the year has progressed, and we're now nearly 18 months down the line since those extra beds were put in place, they're all they're full pretty much every night of the week and every night of the year. And we're seeing the numbers of people sleeping rough edging upwards. So on any given night in Cork, you could have anything from two or three people to maybe 11 or 12. And those extra beds, if my memory serves me right, you you put in those extra beds for, it was to carry you over the winter. That's right. They were put in place in the winter of 2017. Support from City Council. The idea was that we would take them out of commission in March 2018. But the need for them was such that we kept them open and they're still uh, online, so to speak, to this very day. And, you know, we, we say beds, they're basically mattresses on the floor of our day service. Um, anything up to 18 mattresses a night. Um, they're kind of hauled out at 11 o'clock each evening and people are asked to leave at, at 7.30, 8 o'clock the next morning for the day centre for its usual activities. So they're only available overnight. 
It just keeps them safe and in and and in off the streets. It's not ideal. It's certainly yeah. a much better option than sleeping rough. Absolutely. But if we get a bad spell of weather, and I mean we will get bad weather at winter. You know that that definitely is going to happen. And, and please God, we won't get a particularly bad cold snap. But if we do, will you try to provide extra emergency beds this winter? And, and if so, where? And we're looking at that at the moment, Patricia. Yes, you know, uh, particularly when the weather is bad, we try to take in as many people as is safe to do so. So, for example, there's 47 beds in our emergency shelter proper. Typically, of a night, there would be 50, 51 in there. Uh, we just find extra floor space in, in parts of the shelter. Um, now the nightlight uh, has, you know, up to 18 mattresses on the floor. They're pretty much occupied every night of the year. So we're going to have to take a look at that um, and see where we can um, offer people a bed in, in, in cases of severe weather. And that's our expectation that we will get severe weather because that seems to be the trend over the last few years. So that's something that we're looking at carefully at the moment. There isn't an easy answer right now. And do people turn up looking for an emergency bed and literally there's no room at the inn? You have to say, no, we don't We don't have any. Uh, that's, uh, again, uh, increasingly the case when we brought those extra nightlight beds in, in place. Um, that trend stopped, so we were turning people away less and less because the place was full. But now that those beds are, are occupied pretty much every night of the year, that's beginning to be the case again. Yeah, and that would be our concern coming into the winter, you know. And will there always be rough sleepers by choice? There will always be rough sleepers. I think by choice is a very strong word. Um, You know, we have cases where people are offered an emergency bed. They don't want to come in. And and I think, let's face it, an emergency shelter isn't the most pleasant place to be if you have poor mental health or if you suffer from paranoia or, you know, have problems trusting people or perhaps, you know, you're very withdrawn into yourself. I mean, you've got 47 people with complex needs in a very small space um, and that can be a difficult environment for some people. Um, So I think by choice might be too strong a word. Absolutely, absolutely. um, You know, it may be something that, that people don't feel in themselves uh, able to do so. Yeah. And the rental crisis, Paul, is that one of the main reasons why people are remaining homeless and staying homeless for such long periods of time? It really is. I mean, anybody who's stuck in our shelter at the moment, really their their only hope for a fast exit is the private rented sector. And that's pretty much beyond their reach. Um, we see people coming to our soup run still about a third of them, who are in private rented. Um, Everybody will put all of their resources into trying to keep the roof over their head, and quite often there's nothing left. And, you know, they end up at the soup run looking for food and maybe even some social contact and maybe even some advice. And quite often, you know, we'd see them knocking on the door of the shelter at some point in the future. Um, There's a huge scarcity of private rented accommodation. That's still the case. And, you know, the rents continue to increase. Um, And they are far, far in excess now of of what's available to people in terms of um, social welfare supports. And I imagine for somebody who has been homeless, sleeping rough, using, you know, your emergency accommodation, and then they try to get private rented accommodation, you know, they won't have references. Exactly. It's going to be really difficult uh, if they go up against a family that has references and has, you know, all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. Absolutely. And, and we did some research last year, Patricia, on that very point. 
and the kind of challenges people face in trying to access rental accommodation, and that's one of them, you know, not having references. Increasingly, people are looking for work references. Um, increasingly, people are looking for bank references. Um, you know, there was a, a story a couple of weeks ago here in Cork uh, where 50 people turned up for a public viewing of yeah. a private rented property. It's two-bedroom property. Yeah. Uh, the rent was something like 1300 1400 a month. Um, you know, I think a lot of us would find it very difficult to afford that kind of monthly rent. And, you know, the most recent survey from daft.ie suggests that uh, rental payments now far outstrip your average mortgage repayments every Mm. month. Yeah, and you put into the mix, you're trying to get homeless people who are unemployed. That's right. You're putting them into... And in fact, you've got people who are employed uh, but can't afford rental accommodation, you know. All right, fundraising, uh, Paul, an ongoing issue uh, for for Simon. So, you know, all of us here at C103, we're very proud to be your media partners for your annual Great Cork Simon Supper. That's right. Uh, um, and this will run throughout September. And it's, it's, you know, we're just asking people to, you know, maybe gather their friends or their family or their work colleagues together of an evening. It doesn't have to be anything elaborate. I think it just demonstrates that you're kind of standing in solidarity with people who are experiencing homelessness and um, that you're kind of standing up and, and speaking out, I guess grab a bit of food, it could be a pizza, it could be, you know, whatever, uh, or it could be something elaborate that you're interested in preparing or, or anything in between. Uh, and just ask people to, to join that gathering really in support of Cork Simon and to um, make some donation to Cork Simon. That's that's the kind of context okay, of it. Okay, well done, well done. And we'll talk more about that uh, throughout the month of September. Paul, in the meantime, thank you for that and uh, continue good luck to the great work of everybody involved with the Simon community. And thank you, Patricia. Thanks for joining us. Uh, bye-bye. Uh, Paul Sheen of uh, Cork Simon 185333103 that problem with homelessness it's just it's not going away it's just not going away if anything it's getting worse something else that isn't going away are the farmers and particularly the beef farmers just to tell you the latest on that you may have heard about this overnight that farmers had staged a protest outside APB in Bandon. It was late evening yesterday. Anyway, we've now been told they've moved away from the plant. C103 News, if you want to, went down to the plant this morning. Spoke to two farmers uh, who say they feel disheartened by the situation but un- were unwilling to go on air. She tells us there was up to 30 protesters there last night, but they've left. And that, of course, is following the High Court injunction. The beef plan movement has has stated that it has unconditionally withdrawn from any protests, but is advising that members involved in any protest will immediately be expelled from the organisation. Oh, that's quite strong uh, coming from the beef plan uh, movement. So that's the very latest of any more breaks on that story. Throughout the morning, we will bring it uh, to you. Uh, 1850 333 Text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Every Friday, we're counting down to the weekend, the weekend. by turning up the feel good. C103's Feel Good Friday brings you six hours of Feel Good Greatest Hits. Join Nick Richards from 1 and Martina O'Donoghue from 4 as we get you weekend ready. Weekend ready. Turning up the Feel Good for Cork. For Cork. Every Friday from 1. 
Feel Good Friday, only on C103. According to the latest coastal survey by the Irish Business Against Litter, no Cork area was deemed clean among the 42 areas surveyed across the country. Conor Horgan of Eibel uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Conor. Good morning, Patricia. Now, with the majority of our towns uh, are clean, why are we doing so badly when it comes to our beaches and waterways? Well, uh, as you know from previous conversations, we've had, Patricia, that when, when Dr. Tom Kavanagh of Eyeball started us on this path back in 2002, our towns were far from clean. In mm. fact, none of our towns back then were deemed clean. And, you know, this has been a long-term mission. Thankfully, in recent years, we've reached a point where 80% of our towns are clean. And now that mission has taken a new path. We're continuing to assess towns, but we're now looking at coastal areas and rivers. And, you know, the starting point isn't, well, it's slightly dissimilar from where we started with our towns. But again, we have a small percentage of our coastal areas and rivers uh, clean at the moment. But we'll keep at it and we hope to reach the same level of cleanliness at these areas as we have at our town. Yeah, I made that very point earlier when I was teeing up that you were coming on the on the programme. Uh, we won't give up. It it took a while for the cities and and, and the towns uh, to follow suit, but they did. And I think, you know, by talking about it and by putting a spotlight on a particular area, it is a wake-up call for people. Well, we'll hope so. And I mean, you mentioned there at the outset, Patricia, that you know, Cork has fared poorly in that none of the areas surveyed reached the cleanliness grade. Unfortunately, the story doesn't stop there. The fact is that Cork Harbour, for the second year in a row, was at the foot of our rankings. And I'd mention in particular Black Rock Castle. There's a, a beautiful amenity for visitors and for school children um, in, in Cork. And it, it's spoilt by the, letter, the, the level of litter. I mean, the Antashka report there talked about... Uh, you know, a green wheelie bin was submerged, several plastic bags of rubbish. That's the same report we were reading this time 12 months ago. Now, I see in the papers in Cork that there's there's calls for support to clean it up. But the local authority can't be silent about this because we won't be. And, uh, you know, we hope the same effect we've had by continuously hammering home the point on individual sites will have a positive effect as it has had with the town. Okay, so that's the worst end, Cork Harbour, coming out as, as uh, heavily littered and, and, and littered, respectively. Um, we None came out clean to European norms, moderately littered. Tell me what you found there. Yes, moderately And it's much the same as with the towns, Patricia, that at the, at the very bad end of the scale, you're seeing dumping instead of littering. That was the case in Ballinacur in Cork Harbour and in Blackrock Castle, as I mentioned. Further up the, the, the list, the story isn't so bad. We're talking about, you know, general land-based litter, typically on our beaches and rivers, as well as water-based litter, you know, caused by people dropping food wrappers and plastic bottles and, and cigarette butts. And, um, you know, a point we're making this time out, Patricia, is that if you were to take one message from our campaign, it should be that, you know, the seemingly harmless piece of food wrapping or cigarette butt that you might throw on the ground, its impact goes beyond the visual. It has a deep impact on the environment. In fact, an untold impact. I say untold because we're only learning about it as we go on. For example, recent research was showing that a single cigarette butt can contaminate 200 litres of groundwater. My so goodness. that is not a harmless piece of yeah. litter. Yet one would think nothing of dropping a cigarette, a cigarette butt on the ground. 
likewise, food wrappers generally are entering our sea and they're being consumed by plankton, which is impairing the ocean from absorbing CO2. Thus, we have climate change problem and so on and so forth. We're destroying the entire balance of our ecosystem. And litter is a cont- contribution to that. So, you know, we'd be saying to people that litter is more important than, than we thought it was. And I noticed reading down the various reports that came out of the sites that you surveyed in Cork, a number of them, including, for example, Long Strand, had a wide variety of marine items were present. And a lot of them you'll see, you you know, your inspectors will refer to uh, fishing lines and lobster pots. And uh, do we always expect fishing related litter? Well, you know, we make that point specifically and we asked our examiners to look out for it because maybe the, uh, you know, the average visitor to a beach thinks nothing of that. Maybe it sort of sees it as somewhat inevitable that there'd be parts of nets or, or tackle or so forth uh, being strewn up on the beach. But, you know, the fishing community has a role to play here. The harbours also need to provide facilities for, for the fishing community to dispose of their equipment. Um, because this equipment can be very damaging to the sea life. And uh, there was a picture in the national press only a few months ago of, of a gamut suffering by having, by having eaten a, a net from a, from, from a fishing net. And like, you know, that's happening quite a lot. So again, the impact of this litter is greater than we think. And that, you know, and that's that's what's most worrying, I think, about your results of your survey. I mean, it not only affects uh, tourism and people who live in in the area and like to use those wonderful amenities of of our beaches, but it's the global impact because of the litter ending up in our seas. And and that's education, uh, Patricia. And, you know, uh, as I say, this is the start of a long term mission. Part of that will be educating people because I, I do believe that people won't treat litter so nonchalantly if they know this impact. Like, I've had lots of response to this fact about cigarette butts. People saying, I had no idea that was the case. Yeah, um, so and if, if you look at our evolution, the evolution of cleanliness in our towns, most of our towns are thankfully free of, cigar- of, of food wrappers and plastic bottles. They're not free of cigarette butts. So it's almost like the last step towards cleanliness. And We'd like to reach a point where if you saw a person on the street dropping a cigarette butt, you'd, you'd feel entitled to accost them and say, you're pick causing real damage yeah. there. Pick, yeah, pick, Who would do that at that the up. moment? Very few people. Absolutely. And when I mentioned that we were going to be talking uh, with you this morning, uh, we started getting calls in about bring sites in our area. And then we were looking at some Facebook posts where people are highlighting uh, various rubbish that's been left behind. I mean, poor old Cloyne, their local tidy towns group, who do the most amazing work. And then we got a photograph of their bottle banks and the amount of people that had left because the bottle banks were full. And a number of people had commented, Connor, and said, but those bottle banks need to be emptied more often. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. everywhere you go when you're doing your service, do you notice that, that you've got, we, we've a lot of problem with these bring sites? Look, it's no surprise that the bring sites are, they're magnets for litter. And really, you would expect that, that people go there with the intention of disposing of their items. If they're full, people will dispose of them illegally. And, you know, there's a balance to you. That's not correct and we wouldn't condone it. But, you know, if that's happening on a recurring basis, that's a clear message to the local authority that they need to empty them more regularly. Mm. People will not do that otherwise. So, um, you know, what should be an important contribution to cleanliness is often the opposite. 
because it's not maintained properly. The same applies, uh, Patricia, to uh, receptacles at beaches. We hear lots of calls for more receptacles at beaches, and I think there is a case for that. But they need to be they need to be maintained more regularly as well. Yeah, because that's that resources was resources for the local authority. Yeah, you know, but it was else. it was one of the reasons that local authorities removed a lot of those bins from yeah. the beaches and from the parks. Uh, the, many times they were being abused. People were bringing their they domestic are, rubbish. Not, it doesn't just apply to but just generally bins are becoming scarcer because they are being abused by people. So there's a balance to be found there. On that point, another message we'd have, Patricia, is that. Um, you know, we're, we're, we don't enjoy guaranteed, prolonged, dry, sunny spells every summer. And this summer was probably a case in point where the weather was quite changeable. You know, as a result, the family trip to the beach was an irregular occasion. Mm-hmm. As a result of that, people probably aren't used to planning properly when they go to the beach. And I, I know the issue myself when you've got kids and it's a big ordeal going to the to the beach and getting all the stuff ready and so forth. But people need to have it in their minds that everything they bring will have to come back home with. But you see, it annoys me. Yeah, because but what really annoys me, I, I'm going to get on my soapbox now. People bring all these items in some kind of a container, a bag, or a picnic basket, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. So you, you just bring bring the waste home with you. You have the containers in which you brought them in. So bring them back it's in not the containers. A big deal. Now, now maybe look, some of the food items might become messy or something like that. So you, you know, you just you just allow for them. You have nappies, then you need to have bags to take yeah. the nappies home, which you typically would have. But, and it, you know, it's no problem when you're prepared for it, you know. Um, but, you know, you're, it's delusional to think that there'll be ample receptacles at a beach on a summer day. There be- just won't. There won't. There can never be. Right. So, you know, that's, that's a bit of education as well. I imagine our counterparts on the continent used to maybe a weekly pilgrimage to the beach manage things better. Yeah, but whenever you mention on the continent, you will have people say, oh, I was on holidays in Spain and, and the council were out every day cleaning the beach. Yeah, um, a problem that's not so easy to fix is that, you know, the, the nature of our local authorities, they're, they're poor at responding to the peaks in demand that occur on our beaches, often with little notice. For example, last weekend I was there in Curraclough in Wexford and it was very busy, but it could easily have been very quiet. And, you know, the resources within the local authority can't respond very quickly to those peaks. And you know it may not be appropriate that they would have large teams cleaning the beach every day of the summer because it might not be required. But at the same time, we need to be flexible in then quickly responding to when the requirement is there on foot of a few sunny days. Yeah, yeah, but the council will say it all goes back to funding and we don't have the funding and we don't have the manpower. But anyway, uh, we'll keep highlighting it, uh, Connor. and you're doing amazing work at uh, Eyeball. When is your next uh, Litter League survey out for the towns well, and villages? The second, the second, let's call it Land Litter League survey, is, um, is taking place at the end of the year. So it will be published uh, the first week of January and um, we'll be repeating this exercise of our coastal survey uh, in 12 months' time. Okay. All right, listen, thank you for that and we'll talk again, Connor. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, Good morning to you. That is Connor Horgan uh, joining us from uh, Eyeball. Uh, 1850-333-103. Heidi says, Morning, Patricia. You're speaking on litter. I sent you in a I sent you in what was happening in Skibbereen recycling back in Sep- back 
on the 9th of September when charges will come in I think more litter will be dropped off all over West uh, Cork and this was a piece that it's from the 9th of September isn't it there are to be new charges on the recycling centre in the Bring site in Skibbereen and there it will be a charge of €3 Euro. I'm assuming from that that it's free up to now all the other civil community t- sites charge €3 Euro. they obviously hadn't been charging at the Bring site in Skibbereen but just let people know from, from September it, there will be a three euro uh, charge will it cause some people to litter? Please God not, but the gut instinct would tell you as well. Martina O'Donoghue. Make C103 part of your drive home with up-to-date traffic information and local news, your input in selecting our feel-good song of the day, plus our feel-good story and as many of Cork's greatest hits that we can fit into three hours. Join me, Martina O'Donoghue, every weekday from four to seven. C103. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Some of your thoughts coming into us. The lines have been quite busy this morning. We are going to be talking about Edward Bransfield, this man that a lot of people don't know about. And uh, he has a connection in that he was the first to chart the Antarctica. And he's not, he hasn't gone down in the history books the same as other explorers have. And there's a group of people have decided no more. They want him to be remembered. And there's talks of next year, uh, 2020, of erecting a monument in Ballinacurra, where he was originally from. And it's to, I was saying it's celebrating the 200th anniversary of, I couldn't remember which which it was. Was it his birth? What was it? But Arslan Bandicaro was on to say the monument will be marking Edward Bransfield's first sighting of his charting and sighting of Antarctica. OK, so that's what the 200 year commemoration will be. We'll talk about the man uh, later on uh, in this hour. Eileen in Middleton is, they said, very ex- great excitement in Bandicaro uh, to hear about uh, Edward. We're proud, very proud that he's going to be remembered. Yes, yeah, so there obviously are people locally. I don't know if there's any, see any direct descendants still living in the area. Anybody still bearing the name of Bradsfield, Bransfield in the East Cork area. Be interested to see if he has any direct uh, descendants. And then on the roses of Rose of Tralee and we are, fingers crossed, about 20 past 12 going to speak with uh, Sinead Flanagan this year's Rose of Tralee the Limerick Rose announced last night Maureen in Charleville so did anybody see the Kildare Rose last night her singing of the parting glass was excellent well done to her she's a fantastic singer she had the crowd in the dome in tears so well done to Sinead for picking up the title of Rose of Tralee Marion in Mallow said I thought the Rose of Tralee was fantastic this year well done to all Dahi O'Shea was so relaxed on stage with all of them and well done to Sinead. Great to have a bit of a North Cork connection to the winning Rose. And Helen in Coachford also really enjoyed watching the Rose of uh, Tralee. She said it was a very different offering to the other items that are on TV at the moment. She said people are always giving out about RTE but the last couple of nights proved the entertainment value and keeping the real Irish traditions alive. The Rose of Tralee is an Irish tradition and it's great to see it continue rather than somebody in Dublin pulling the plug because it might not be cool or it mightn't be urban enough. Well done to all those uh, involved. And no doubt in the coming days we'll get the the official TAM ratings, the viewership ratings and I bet you it'll be one of the most watched programmes over the summer uh, even people who give out about it will end up at some stage even if you don't stay with it it's just it's a very long programme in that it's you know it's on until half past 11 I mean I don't know what time it ended at last night it's usually 
well past half past 11 and that's well past my bedtime so I went to bed not knowing it was the, at the 6 o'clock this morning though I was up bright and early able to find out who won the competition last night but anyway it, it goes on for very long but people whether they stay with all of it and some people do some people do not miss a minute of the Rose of Tralee but other people everyone at some stage will have flicked across even if you only spent a couple of minutes with it or made sure that you saw the person the rose you most wanted to see people do have a tendency uh, to dip in and out of it and it does very well from a viewership for the viewership figures it certainly does well for our RTE and Chris Moy says would you spare a thought please for the London Rose Laura Kennedy she was also one of the favourites to win last night along with Sinead the Limerick Rose who went on to win and the London Rose Laura Kennedy is from Glenville so she she also is very local, local. I know we did that report wasn't it Maraid? We sent Maraid off to Carrigaline when the Roses were on their whistle stop tour around the country last week and we sent Maraid from the newsroom off to have a chat with the Roses and I think I counted she found seven people that had very strong Cork connections including obviously the fact Sinead the winner works in Mallow General Hospital so there's been a lot of Cork connections for this year I think more than any other year uh, for sure. Okay, coming in on WhatsApp to 0862103103 when we're speaking about litter and coastal litter and waterway litter in particular is what we were focusing on this morning. Hi Patricia, our group working with the wheelie boat in Formoy have been cleaning the river in Formoy. We've been doing that for the past 12 years. We have one more clean up this September and we must thank Formoy Rowing Club and Save Formoy Weir Group for all of their help. We also educate young anglers to take their tackle packaging and used fishing lines home. Never discard fishing lines. It's a death trap for all birds of all sizes. Thanking you. And that's uh, Chris uh, uh, Kipper O'Donovan. Thank you for that, uh, Chris. Doing has always done fantastic work with the wheelie boat in Formoy, but unfortunately the wheelie boat in Formoy has been retired at the moment. Hopefully that'll be back up on the river again, but with the weir and that ongoing saga, they had to pull the, take the boat out of the river, which was devastating for everybody involved. Uh, and thank you, Chris. That came in by WhatsApp. And just by the way, when I mentioned WhatsApp, somebody earlier sent me on this and it's worth giving it a mention to anybody who, who uses WhatsApp. And we get a lot of our commentary in from people using WhatsApp. It's, it's a very, very popular uh, app, particularly for sending on text messages and photographs and videos, etc. And somebody has put in a warning. And this is obviously coming from WhatsApp, that there is a virus. If you get a WhatsApp called Martinelli, do not open it. It goes into your phone and there's nothing you can do to fix it. If you receive a message to update WhatsApp Gold, that's another one. They say do not open it. Uh, WhatsApp have announced that it's a virus and it's a virus that's very serious. So send it to, uh, to everyone. So the two to look out for is WhatsApp Gold. If you get any... Thing, looking for a, for an update on WhatsApp Gold, delete it. And then Martinelli is the other one. That's uh, another one with a, a virus and it seems to just be 
attacking and taking over WhatsApp. So do be careful, guys. And Matthew was on to say, very disappointed to hear that the farmers stopped their protesting outside the meat plant in Bandon. This was the protest that reconvened outside APB in Bandon last evening. About 30 farmers uh, turned up, but then they subsequently have moved on. And it was because uh, owners of up to a dozen meat plants were granted a temporary high court action restraining groups like those farmers in Bandon from protesting. Uh, it's restraining them from blockading their factories. They alleged in court yesterday that they were, had been intimidating staff and they were intimidating suppliers. So in court yesterday was uh, Dawn Meats and uh, APB and they said that the actions of the protesters were threatening. They were abusive but their big worry and their big concern was that it could jeopardise a multi-million euro meat deal with China. Now, it seems that a delegate, a Chinese delegation is due to meet and visit the meat factories in the next few days and they're coming over to Ireland to carry out inspections of processing and hygiene and the aim of the visit is the hope and the view that they will increase exports to the Chinese market. They will put in bigger orders if they're happy with the inspection, if they're happy the way the processing plants work and obviously if they're happy with the hygiene. And obviously the barristers who were in court representing the meat plants yesterday said the potential new deal with China had taken years to set up and if it was cancelled because of the action of protesters it could take several more years of negotiations to put it back in place again. I don't know how the Chinese would view protesters outside a meat uh, plant but it certainly would curtail the work of the meat plant and if these guys and maybe there's gals as well coming over from China are coming over to inspect how the processing works and there was protesters outside and the animals weren't getting in that would mean the meat plants wouldn't be working at full power so the Chinese wouldn't get a good feel for what's going on so it may actually deter them from putting in uh, extra orders and any extra orders particularly from a country like China because we have so much concerns and worries with Brexit and it is one of the main concerns of the protesters and of the beef farmers was the fall in the price of Irish beef and that's due to market forces related to Brexit and an increased supply of beef in uh, Europe and the farmers were attempting to force the beef processors to pay higher prices to farmers for their cattle but because of Brexit looming we need to find new markets and we particularly need to find uh, new markets uh, like the Chinese market. The Chinese market is huge and could even be bigger so I suppose uh, no matter what side of the fence you're on on this even for people that have sympathy with the beef farmers and the amount of money they receive for their animals I think nobody including the farmers themselves would want in any way to jeopardise this delegation that's coming over from uh, China so that's the very latest on that they were in the High Court yesterday and they were granted the injunction and because I think once the farmers found out there was a High Court uh, injunction they moved on and of course the beef plan movement have uh, stated that any protests anyone who's protesting please don't do it under the beef plan movement name because if you do you will be expelled from the organisation 1850 John Paul taking your calls you can text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103 C103 Jobs 
caretaker roles are available for CE schemes in Grenna, in Whitechurch and in Inascara. Admin roles are also available in Blarney and in Inascara. Landscape operative is required. That's for a busy East Cork landscaping business. While the HSC is recruiting home care staff in the West Cork area, and a window fitter is wanted for West Cork. Some experience in construction necessary and a full driver's licence essential. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. C103 presents a taste of West Cork Food Festival, which returns September 6th to 15th. The festival celebrates all that's unique about West Cork. With food markets and cooking demonstrations, talks and exhibitions, children's events, adventures and more. There's something for the whole family. For full schedule of events, see at tasteofwestcork.com. Only on C103. For C103 photos and more, follow us on Instagram at C103Cork. Cork today on C103. Call Patricia with your comment. 1850-333-103. And can I wish the very best of luck to Tristan Coakley from Bantry Bay Golf Club. He's competing in the Irish Students Amateur Open Championship at Donegal Golf Club. And I'm told that Tristan teed off this morning at half past nine. I don't know if anybody at the Bantry Bay Golf Club can update us on how young Tristan is doing. But if you, if you can, let us know and we'd love to give it a mention but best of luck to him in the Irish Students Amateur Open Championship that is Tristan at Coakley. Now, according to the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, Cove Community Hospital, which has served the people of the town for more than 100 years, is under imminent threat of closure, with just five weeks of funding left to keep the services running. Sinn Féin TD for Cork East is Deputy Pat Buckley, who uh, joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Pat. Good morning, Patricia, and good morning to your listeners. Pat, has this news come out of the blue, or did you know something was, was, was up at Cove Community Hospital? To be perfectly honest, um, Patricia, uh, it came out of the blue. I actually received an email from the INMO, just updating just what you said, that you know that the funding for Cove Community Hospital could be gone within the next five weeks. And I think it's, abs- it's an absolute shocking indictment of you know a government that we have now. At the moment, there are 44 beds there, 15 staff, plus other complementary staff. And from my correspondence with the INMO, um, even though it's a community-owned hospital, there has been HSC funding each year, but that has decreased year in, year out. And you know, I did contact the Minister for Health, and I have asked him to engage with the INMO, the hospital staff, and the management, and the board as soon as possible to try and get this resolved because you know as well as anybody else knows that, you know, the heart of anything is in the community and we have to start from the bottom up, which is primary care, I suppose, led, then, you know, letting this escalate. I mean, we have issues within our hospitals at the moment with huge waiting lists, people on trolleys, and now you're going to try and move 44 more people, patients, out of their beds. And a lot of these are elderly. And it's, it's not actually a community hospital to a lot of these. It's ho- a home. So it is very, very frustrating. It's very, very heartbreaking for the families. Um, I am very worried for the fact that it's actually community-owned and led by the people of Cove. It belongs to the people of Cove. But it's, fu- of that, but it's funded by the HSC. Partly funded, Patricia. So where does the rest of the funds? 
Fundraising comes from the local community. Actually, last Saturday you had the Liverpool Legends versus Cove Ramblers in Cove, and all monies raised from that was actually going to the hospital as well. But did the HSC not at least cover all of the staff? Well, you would surely think so. But, I mean, it's been very... Um, I'm just awaiting. I just checked practically two minutes, I'd say, before you rang. I checked my emails to see if there's any reply from the Minister's office. I haven't got anything yet. Um, once I'm finished talking to you, I'll talk to Mr Conway with the INMO and see if they have any updates. The only statement I got from, we'll say, the HSC was a statement from the Cork Terry Community Healthcare to say that the community hospital is financially viable. But I said to one of the previous callers earlier on, I said, well, it's, it, that sounds great, but I mean, you can't go into a bank and cash your tanks. Mm. And I mean, they'll say it's up to government funding. We must remember, Patricia, it's not government funding, it's taxpayers' funding. So, I mean, you know, people down in Cove are paying for this over between direct taxes and direct taxes, going out fundraising, and still, yes, the HSE and this government can't keep it open. Yeah, and there's the, the group, isn't it, Friends of, uh, of Cove Hospital, uh, who are to do amazing work. And that they have to keep doing that every year just to keep the hospital going. Yes, and I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's shameful. And it's not, it's not, a, it's happening all over the place. We have an issue in Middleton as well that's uh, a ward there, St Mary's Ward, that has been closed for a long time now. There's seven beds there, you know, convalescent beds and so on and so forth. Now, we've been pr- promised, I was in there a number of weeks ago, I called to the hospital, they said they're just waiting on the fire safety service to be signed off. But, um, you know, we've also got promises of a 50-bed uh, new unit in Middleton Community Hospital, a 33-bed refurb in Yall. Uh, these are supposed to be completed by 2021. And all I've seen at the moment is the planning application with them for the one in Middleton, but... Despite that, I mean, here we are with false promises and we're, we could be possibly looking five weeks just coming up to the run of Christmas where we'll have 44 patients um, taken out of their community setting for the fact and, that, you know... But pass, and, put, and put where? Exactly. That's what I said at the start. Where are they going to put them? There is no place to put them. I mean, it's, it's absolutely shocking. And as I said, I'm like the proverbial greyhound now, Patricia, that the, the bell is after ringing. I know the hair is running and I can't get out the trap because I can't seem to get the answers fast enough to see what's going to happen with this. Uh, Breeze says, as, um, ask the Sinn Féin uh, but it's, it's uh, Pat Buckley, uh, what he would do to solve this. Sinn Féin are always on the radio saying this, but they never seem to have a solution to the problem. What would he and his party do to rectify this problem if they were in power? What would you do for community hospitals? Well, the first thing you have to do is get the minister to engage with all the staff and management down there and the board and talk to the IMO and find out where, why is there an overspin? There has to be an overspin if there's a shortfall in funding, number one. I also sat on the Future Healthcare Committee, which actually, you know, signed off on the Future of Healthcare to Stange Care Report, where everything is designed to start from the bottom up. The issue we have at the moment within the HSC, it's top-led, it's top-heavy management, and where the money should be spent, which is at local level and up, whereas if it's a preventative response more than a reactive response, you won't get the issues when you have people you know, going to the likes of CUH because they should be getting the quality of care locally. So we have to start funding locally, put it into community hospitals, put it into, you know, my side in the mental health, put it into the services there, and stop letting the problems fester. This is an issue we have here now again in Cove. 
where they've given us five weeks, so-called five weeks, of potentially closing the community hospital, when why wasn't this flagged earlier with any of us? And I have to thank the INMO for just because, I mean, at least somebody is telling us because it seems to be very difficult to get information. Well, reading... I was reading in the in the uh, examiner this morning a piece by Sean O'Reardon on this uh, issue. Um, well, indeed, you could self quoted, but he's also quoting Labour councillor Cahill uh, Ras- Rasmussen, who says Cahill is aware of the situation because he said talks between the hospital board of management and the HSC have been going on for weeks. So, is are the INMO just scaremongering on this? I don't. I don't think so, Patricia. To be honest, I've engaged with the INMO over the last number of years and they're very um, constructive, very forward. You know, they, they don't mess around. I just think it's coming to a stage where they're now starting to panic. And as I said, I mean, the least you can do is actually get the Minister for Health to come down and meet with the staff and people and try and get this resolved, but certainly try and come up even with a solution. We surely can find funding somewhere. We have massive overspends in the Children's Hospital above. They can find money when they want it. Yeah, but is, I mean, isn't that the big worry, Pat, that everyone's pointing to? There's so much of an overspent on the children's hospital that other areas are going, they've got to get the money somewhere. And it's the that's obvious places, the is places like Cove Community Hospital. And that's the big issue here. We're starting, we're, we're hitting the people at the bottom again, which is wrong. Absolutely, utterly and totally wrong. I mean, let's go, let's why not come up with forward planning? That was the idea of doing this um, Slaunch Care report, mm. to come up with a 10-year plan Pick the demographics. We know that the likes of cancer would be a kind of a high instance in, we'll say, Cork to maybe some other counties. So you pick out the demographic area, you invest in that, you reduce the problems, you find the solutions, thus uh, lowering all the actual issues, i.e. your reactive issues. It stops people cluttering up the likes of accidents and emergency because a lot of this should be done at a community level. I know you say you've written to the Minister for, for Health, Simon Harris. Have you... What about Jim Daly? He's the Minister with responsibility for, older for older people. Would he would he not have more direct line to the HSC? Because like it looks... I know the INMO are saying they've written to the HSC asking them to, to pro- provide the financial assistance. At the end of the day, it's the HSC will write the cheque. Would Jim Daly not have more clout at HSC local level? Unfortunately, Patricia, the way that actually works, no matter what we say parliamentary question I would put into Minister Harris or Minister Daly, it will be passed on automatically to the HSE for a reply. Yeah. And normally that procedure takes 15 days. Well, that's why we approach the minister and say, can we go directly to the minister? The minister can then filter from the top down, i.e. Minister Jim Daly. It's part of your remit, Minister for All the People, and see, can we speed things up? This is the idea of it. You know, and in I mean, and, no and you know, and I'm I'm you know my gut instincts tell me this will be sorted. There's no way 44 elderly patients uh, from Cove Community Hospital they're not going to be running around trying to find their new beds. So it will get sorted. But in the meantime, the very fact that it's been discussed now, I'm hoping that the patients in, in the residents themselves are unaware of what's going on, even though they're probably sharp out and they know exactly what's, what's happening but they're, it must be just such a worry for their families Pat Oh absolutely Patricia and, and I mean it's, it's like you know being forecast that you've been, you've been given written notice to say that you could quite possibly be homeless that you're going to have no care you're on your own uh, the best to look a pat in the back and out you go I mean that's not a way we should treat people in this country 
and certainly not our most vulnerable. And as I said, of course, naturally, they're not going to affect the 44 patients, their families and their, and their relations and so on and so forth. So it affects a big, huge pool of people. I mean, I, I don't know, but if I was in that position, I'd feel very hard done for the fact that the people in Cove collect a lot of money to keep that hospital open. The people inside there, the staff and everything, do their utmost to give the best duty of care. And yet for the sake that it's down again to funding, I mean, this should be basically, it's about a person's need, not a person's means, i.e. money. Absolutely. All right. Uh, get back to us, Pat, if you hear anything on this story. I am, I am just like, as I said, the proverbial greyhound, I'm just I'm checking my emails every couple of minutes just to see when okay. or if we'll get a reply. All right. We look forward to hearing from you, Pat. Uh, in the meantime, thank you for that and thanks for joining us. And thank you too, Patricia. God that bless. is uh, Sinn Féin, Cork East Dáil Deputy, Pat Buckley. And what is a worrying story coming out of Cove, but as I say, my gut instinct tells me it will get sorted. This is just one of these unfortunate financial issues that has to get highlighted. The media have to get involved in it and then someone somewhere will take out a checkbook, they'll write the cheque and everything will be sorted out. But it's just, it's the mental worry and the anxiety that it's putting on on both patients and on their families. I mean, they're elderly people and you, I would love to think that all 44 elderly people have family living locally who all come to visit them on, on a regular basis. And if they were to get moved, uh, firstly, they'd probably be separated. They certainly wouldn't be able to find a setting that all 44 would be able to move together so they could be scattered in all different nursing homes and then it could be t- might be too far away for families to go and visit. So, as I say, my gut instinct says it will get uh, uh, sorted. But, you know, we need to make sure that this doesn't happen again next year, the year after, the year after, that any hospital setting could get into a situation where coming to the back end of the year, they're running out of money. This is the Court Today replay on C103. A group of people have got together with the plan of erecting a monument and spreading the word about a little-known Corkman to chat to us about a Ballinacurra native, Edward Bransfield. I'm joined by Eugene Furlong, who is part of the Commemoration Committee. Good morning to you, Eugene. Good morning, Patricia, and thanks very much for having me on and giving me the opportunity to spread the word uh, of Edward Bransfield. Well, we, we are delighted to do it. Okay, firstly, who was Edward Bransfield? Edward Bransfield was just an ordinary, everyday young fella out on his border fishing boat. Uh, the Napoleonic Wars were after breaking out in 1803, so the Royal Navy needed as many sailors as they could get so the practice at the time was press gagging. Okay. You just come along in, into a village or a town, drag whoever they fancied, you know. Yeah. Still going today, you might go up to one or three there and grab JP and it'd be vast that you'd ever see of them. <laughs> they were, they were dif- yeah, there were different times, but that's exactly oh, what happened. Totally different yeah. times. You know, it was, the press gagging was uh, totally legal. You know? Yeah, and what age? What age was he? He was only eighteen. Okay, yeah. so so he was taken off. What happened to him then? He was taken off for press gang, and the first bit of action that he seen was later that year in the um, in the uh, blocky breast. They said the Napoleonic Wars were on. The French had a huge fleet in the port of Brest 
and the British were patrolling outside Brest, keeping the fleet in, so the fleet couldn't get to sea. He survived that, and, you know, he, at, at the time, one thing that... Okay, we don't have a very good line. I might uh, see if John Paul can get uh, Eugene onto a better line because it's it's quite a detailed story, and I want to try and get the message out about as to who Edward Bransfield uh, is. Uh, and I'm also curious if uh, there are any known relatives of Edward Bransfield still in the Ballinacorra, that general area of uh, East Cork. Um, and any direct descendants does anybody because from what I can gather I mean the bit of snooping that I did around uh, yesterday online there does seem to be very little known about Edward's family or his early life let's see is Eugene back Uh, Eugene are you on a clearer line there is that better yeah much better that's much better okay so 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 he he goes off he's in the army he's doing his bit take me up to how he ended up becoming an explorer he he was in the Royal Navy after the Napoleonic Wars ended, okay. the Royal Navy dismissed a huge amount of the people that they had press ganged. But he was kept on because he was a very clever person and he was very good at navigation. He came up with a new way of, uh, of calculating navigation and as such, he was sent on, on a ship to South America to check his navigation skills, which turned out to be second to none. He was in Valparaiso in the, uh, 1819 when a ship came in called the Williams, and the Captain Smith had said, I have seen land that nobody has ever seen before. So Captain Sharif, who was uh, Bradfield's uh, captain, sent him on board the Williams, and they sailed south. They found what uh, Captain Smith had reported as land, but it was actually a set of islands. Uh, And this this is the the, the South Shetland Islands? Yes, the South and, and And Bransfield actually named them? Yes. Oh, he okay. named them, after them and named them. Okay. And this island named King George Island. But unfortunately, at the time, they did not know, but uh, King George had died a couple of days beforehand. <laughs> All right. Okay, so then move on to the... Uh, how did he... He then moved on to the Antarctica? He sailed east. And on the 30th of January, 1820, he sighted land, which he called Trinity Land in honour of Trinity House in the UK. He sailed up along the the peninsula, and they, they had a fair idea at the time. They had a fair thought, a good, that maybe this is the unseen and undiscovered continent of Antarctica. So and, and, it, and it was? Uh, and it was, yeah. 
frustrated uh, by Edward Banfield and his crew back in 1820, 30th of January, 1820. So he chartered it and chartered it uh, amazingly well when he came back and reported his discovery to the Admiralty. There was little or no interest in what he had discovered. Plain and simply because the questions he would have been asked was, of the natives there, what type of jewellery and gold have they on, on them? And he would have said, there's no natives there. Tis, tis the barren land. There's nobody there. Okay. What, what's, what's the, what are the fields like? What's growing there? There's nothing growing there. It's only bare rock and ice. So they weren't interested because they couldn't make any money out of it, basically. Exactly. Okay. Plus, they were more interested in finding uh, the Northwest Passage, you know, uh, uh, a, a way of getting from uh, the Atlantic into the Pacific without having to go around uh, Cape Horn in South America, which is the nearest point of land to the Antarctic pe- Peninsula. Like, Antarctica itself is just an island down in the very bottom of the world. And because it's an island, there's no land bridge to break up storms. Mm, mm. So any what? storm that you have circulates until it wears itself out. And, and why, why do you believe Edward has been lost in history? Why do you believe so little is known about him? Well, one, one of the major factors of that is there's no photograph of him. There was never... Uh, you know, it is amazing. And yeah, and I know in, in the year 2000, the Royal Mail, they issued a commemorative stamp in his honour. But because they didn't have a photograph of him, the stamp instead, they had to use a, a vessel, the RRS Bransfield, which was named after him. They had to use that instead. So no one has a picture of this man, which is unfortunate. Yeah, hugely unfortunate. Uh, do we know, are there any known relatives in yeah, well, Balanacora? Dashen Balladacora, there's some people in Middleton, but the nearest relatives that we can trace is uh, a, a woman by Alicia Gallo, and she's in America. Now, when Bransfield died, he he left money to his brother in Balladacora, and his brother's son all of a sudden emigrated to America. We do, we can't prove it, we've never seen it, Mm. but we do feel uh, that this money was given by Edward's brother to his son and he emigrated to America and he would be the great, 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 great grandfather of Alicia Gallo and she is the closest Relative you can find. Yeah. Right, and he's buried, I know, in Brighton, isn't it? In Brighton, yeah. Yeah, he's buried in Brighton. Okay, tell me what you plan to do by way of this monument. What we actually have planned, and we're uh, actually more of a reality at this stage, uh, we got in touch with a uh, uh, a local stone sculptor, Matt Thompson, from East Cork. Okay. And we got in touch with Roadstone. And there was a seam of running through 
So Rod's done very kindly gave us a big huge chunk of stone which we give Matt Thompson and Matt has been working on this lump of stone to make a monument now to say that we had no picture of Bradfield Matt had to put his thinking cap on so the design of the monument is actually a beacon ah very good and on the top is the sextant because the sextant and Bradfield's skill in navigation, then there's the writing about who he was and what he discovered, and down at the very end, then there's a penguin, just to uh, relate to Antarctica. You know, when you think of Antarctica, you think of penguins. And you, you plan to do the unveiling. Have you a date set for next year? Yeah, the 25th of January, Saturday the 25th. Okay, of, and, and you're trying to, it's you're commemorating the 200th anniversary of, of the sighting discovery. of the discovery yeah. of, of, of Antarctica. Okay, and we'll talk again close to the time because I imagine you've got a little ceremony planned for it and... Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. That, that and you sure do, and, and you, you, the little group that got together. You do talks, uh, trying to promote them and tell people about. Oh yeah, like if there's any historical group listening or any school that's listening, they can contact us through our Facebook page or our website. Both have the more or less the same uh, remembering Edward Bransfield. Okay, well, well, well done, well done. And when did you first become aware of Edward Bransfield, Eugene? I, I heard the name about 15 years ago. Yeah. But there was, you know, uh, maybe I should have sooner or tried to get the ball rolling, but then with the 200th anniversary coming up, that was... That's the push you needed. Well done, well done, well done. Well, listen, we'll we'll speak again and uh, thank you for sharing your, your vast knowledge of Edward Bransfield with us on the programme today and we'll talk again. Thanks for that. Thank you very much. OK, good morning to you. That is Eugene Furlong who is part of that group that have been set up to remember Edward Bransfield. 1850 We need your gardening questions, please. Because Peter Dowdell will be joining us in after half past 12 today. Uh, if you have a question for uh, Peter, we'd love to hear from you. You can text her WhatsApp 0862103103. Get your questions in. We also are hoping to speak with the new Rose of Tralee at about 20 past 12 today. Fingers crossed for that. And somebody by texting, lovely to hear Eugene Furlong, who we just spoke with there on the radio. He worked in the Apple Computer Factory in Mill Street until it closed in September 1985. There's somebody remembering Eugene uh, for his work in uh, Apple. Thank you for that to 0862 103 103. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Somebody sent in a text earlier wanting to advertise a child minding position in Banton and how to do it. If you ring our office uh, line, Carmen will take your call at 022 42430 and she'll take the details from you. 022 42430. Keep your gardening questions coming. I can see a lot of them coming in. 1850 or you can text our WhatsApp 086 2103103. Now, people in and around 
who live in Mallow or who drive through Mallow will know that a lane of traffic on the Mallow Bridge has been closed for the month of August and this is to allow for the construction of the new pedestrian boardwalk. When the closure was initially announced, uh, we were told that the bridge would reopen on the 31st of August. That is not looking like it's going to happen and I have confirmation on the bridge closure from local councillor Gorod Murphy who joins me. Good afternoon to you, Gorod. Hi, Patricia. Thanks uh, for having me. Um, now, it's, it's, not, it's certainly not going to reopen this weekend, the, the 31st of August, for sure. No, unfortunately not. And uh, we had certainly hoped that, in fact, right up until really yesterday, that was what I'd been told by officials, that it was on schedule. Um, and that would have been, in my view, reasonably acceptable. It would have been one week of disruption for school time. But unfortunately now, it been extended to the 9th of September, uh, which is disappointing, to be honest. Um, do you know what I mean? The next week of disruption for local people, local businesses, which I know have been deeply affected by it. And I suppose my own role, all I can do is pass on the disruption that it's caused and how imperative it is that the bridge actually does open on schedule. Um, which is now the 9th of September, unfortunately. And are, are you are we guaranteed the 9th of September, Gorot? You see, that's just it. And that's what we really have to stress over the next two weeks, that it has to be the 9th. I have been talking to officials. Um, I was um, talking to one just there uh, in the last hour. Um, he said that there was a high-level meeting between uh, council engineers and uh, the contractor, and it was stressed that it really needs to open on the 9th of September. He said that the contractor did ensure them that it was going to open then, or assure them even, um, and committed to double shifts if necessary to actually open it on the 9th. Um, now, I know people have been saying optically that it doesn't look like there's much going on there sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I raised that actually as well with the officials and they said that there it is I suppose a 200 year masonry arch structure and I suppose the other thing is that it's very important to ensure that there's no disruption to services etc and there are a few outside bodies to liaise with such as the ESB etc who were actually on site last weekend um, so that's partly to explain maybe why it does looks like there hasn't been much going on there I know that's scant consolation to local people who are being held up by it, but um, that's basically relaying back what I what I was told. And the traffic is mayhem, Gold, as probably you well know, particularly mornings and evenings. Yeah, it's it's frustrating to be honest from my own perspective, and it's something I actually highlighted myself back in June and July. I had two separate motions at municipal district level, um, you know, saying and that. The earlier it started, the earlier it could finish. And one, you know, for every week that we delayed back then in the height of the summer, it was a week later that it was going to drag on in September or October. But um, look, again, I know that's going to be little consolation to the local people who knew themselves, I suppose, you know, that (laughs) basically the the later we started, it was going to finish. But, you know, I suppose I, I did take a certain amount of encouragement from the official kind of who did tell me that 
you know, they had stressed it to the contractors and the contractors had committed to double shift if necessary okay. um, to get okay. it done by the 9th. And, and this will be, wh- when, it re- when it reopens on the 9th of September, all going well. Is that it on road closures then for well, the bridge? Well, no, um, they will need to do works after that. But I will certainly be pushing for those works to take place at night. And it was. But I thought, I thought, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I thought we were told, yeah. Garold, that any future lane or road closure would be carried out at night time. Yeah. Uh, uh, once that, this work is completed, once this phase yeah, is completed. My impression is that's what, what it's going to be. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. And All right. What I'd be pushing for. But patience is what we are, is now required by motorists. A lot of patience. Unfortunately. A lot yeah, of patience. And I mean, it's frustrating that it's a week later than. than I was told, you know, that we were told. I suppose I can appreciate from the official's perspective that, you know, things come up when you're dealing with a 200-year-old bridge, but at the same time, that's going to be a little consolation to local people, and I'm going to keep pressing for the next two weeks to make sure that it's actually done by the night. That's okay. all I can do, unfortunately. All right, keep in contact with us, uh, Gorod, in the meantime. Thank you for that, and thanks for joining us. Yeah. That is uh, Mallow-based Councillor Gorod uh, Murphy with the latest update on the Mallow Bridge closure not now going to reopen until at the very least Monday the 9th of September. Now some calls coming in. Firstly, I've been told that three to four farmers are back protesting outside the APP site on the McCroom Road in Bandon. Um, well, they're, they're brave, they are brave guys considering that there is a high court injunction against anyone protesting there. They say, the people that are there now, that more will gather across the afternoon. So this is a story to watch. We'll keep you updated on that. Joe and Bantry on the farmer protest says people have a right to protest in this country. There is no law to stop people protesting. No farmers protesting or breaking the law. We are not, we are simply not getting enough money for our uh, beef. Well, I suppose the meat plant owners went to court because they were alleging that their staff were being intimidated and suppliers were being intimidated and that's where they got the High Court action against. Now does that stop people protesting as long as they don't intimidate workers or suppliers? I don't know. I I, I don't know. Now some other texts in um, this. Pat says, Hi Patricia, there will be a lot less beef produced from now on at the price that's been paid at the moment. While the factories are paying for cattle, the farmers are working for little or nothing. And someone else says a suggestion for farmers who want to protest, particularly the farmers, when it was mentioned that one of the reasons that the meat plant owners don't want the farmers protesting at the moment is because the Chinese there's a delegation coming over from China who are going to carry out inspections of processing and hygiene with a view to increasing exports to the Chinese market and they want to protect the Chinese market and make sure that the Chinese are not upset in any way and they might be upset if they see farmers protesting outside. A concerned listener said, suggestion for brow beaten farmers. Silent protest with placards in Chinese explaining prices when the Chinese delegation arrives desperate times require desperate measures and that comes in from somebody who simply signs themselves a concerned uh, listener 1850 and Eugene Furlong who joined us in the last hour to talk about Edward 
Bransfields someone Sheila was on saying Patricia I'm wondering is that the same Eugene Furlong who was involved in bringing the ship's captain that Ernest Shackleton died in said Sheila and then somebody else was saying is it the same Eugene who worked in the Apple computer factory in Mill Street we got back on to Eugene and he's thrilled that people have remembered him and yes he did work in the Apple computer factory in Mill Street until it closed in 1985 and uh, also he is the same Eugene Furlong who did bring the ship's captain that uh, the the ship's ca- cabin sorry not captain the ship's cabin that Ernest Shackleton died in one and the same Sheila thank you for that okay there's a lot of gardening questions thank you for those and then Sheila says Patricia not quite a gardening question but just a warning please to people who are picking blackberries only eat them if the end has a pale green dot where it was attached to the bush. Any other colour means it has a grub or a maggot inside it. Oh, I'm biting into that, says Sheila. Well done. Okay, so that's a good piece of advice. Only eat the blackberries if it has a pale green dot where you attach it to the bush. Okay, good words of advice from Sheila. Thank you, Sheila. We spoke about Cove Communi- Community Hospital. Somebody is raising an issue and they're raising an issue about staff that I'm not going to get into because I, I, I don't know what they're getting to on it. But they are saying by text that the day room and the sensory garden was built in the last few years. It was built at a cost of almost half a million euro. It was built from funds from public dona- donations from the people of Cove. A small grant was received after the projects were started but nothing near the 50% funding you would expect while why, why was that? And by all accounts, the Friends of Cove Community Hospital are an amazing bunch of people for the amount of work that they're doing for the community hospital. And I think that's why it's so upsetting to anybody in the Cove area to hear in any way that that community hospital is under threat of closure because so much locally raised money has gone in to making that community hospital the exceptional facility that it is today, including like that, the building of a day room and a sensory garden. The majority of it done on fundraised money. Incredible. Uh, The people of Cove can be very, 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 very proud of their community hospital. Now, the funding issue just needs to be for once and for all sorted out and get it sorted out so that we're not back here every year. Uh, asking the the very same or having the very same uh, discussions. 1850 333 103 lines open. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council. Supporting businesses, supporting communities, serving Cork. Visit corkcoco.ie. Lachine's House are holding a free training course on suicide prevention. That's on tomorrow night in Knocknahini Holly Hill Youth Centre. It's at half past six until half past nine. If you'd like to book a place, you can at 021-242-7406. A coffee day to raise funds for baby Kitty O'Leary who's recovering from a liver transplant in King's Hospital in London is going to be held this Saturday from 12 noon until 10pm at night. It'll be in the Lane Bar in Ballinagree and great raffle prizes to be won. And the Aaron O'Leary Memorial Run 
That's going to be held next Sunday, the 1st of September, rolling out at 11am from the Marion Hall in Ballinhasic. There is an 80km car and bike run with separate 30km tractor run, prizes and refreshments, and it's in aid of Bumblins and the Cork Children's Hospital. As we've been mentioning all morning, the Rose of uh, Tralee last night was won by Sinead Flanagan, uh, and she became the third woman representing Limerick to win the Rose of Tralee. And lots of people absolutely thrilled with Sinead's win and I've just had a WhatsApp in from Councillor Paul Hayes in West Cork to say Patricia I didn't get to see much coverage of this year's Rose of Tralee as I was out at various meetings I was keeping an eye on the excitement though online of one of my Kerry relations my grandmother on my dad's side was originally from Dingle it turned out to be a fantastic week for my cousin Jamie Flannery who won the best escort at the festival and it was also escort to the overall winner Sinead Flanagan well done to all especially Jamie and his strong West Cork Connections and that's one of our own local councillors Paul Hayes Sinead Flanagan joins me on the line this afternoon Good afternoon to you Sinead Good afternoon, how are you? I'm, I'm very well. I didn't realise, was Jamie one of your escorts? Yes, he was. Jamie and myself were paired at the start, so he was my escort. Yes, he was. Me and Jamie got oh. on very well. Well done. Has it sunk in yet? Um, little by little, I think maybe this evening or tomorrow. Um, but little by little, yes, it's definitely sinking in. I mean, you looked truly shocked on stage <laughs> when Dahi made the announcement. I don't know if you've had a chance to look back at it. I mean, yeah. you genuinely looked like me. Um, Yes, I haven't actually looked back or anything but I see a few snapshots and photos and it's the first thing everyone keeps saying to me uh, look so, so shocked I think it's a reflection of the other fantastic 31 um, ladies beside me that it could have been any of us and I was just uh, very surprised that it it happened to be myself Were you aware that you were one of the bookies' favourites? I, I really hadn't been keeping much of an eye on it. I wouldn't be much of a gambler myself or anything, and I wouldn't <laughs> pass too much notice on things like that. I'd say uh, people around me and things might have been looking, but to be honest, I, I found it hard to, to understand if, how they'd know us or how they'd have picked it. Um, so I didn't really pass too much heat on anything like that. I didn't even think about it, really, to be honest, as you can see by my uh, shell shocked reaction. Exactly. And there's a huge connection, but especially for you and and your family with the Rose Tralee. I heard your mum speaking on one of our news bulletins earlier about the night you were born. Yes, and my mum's actually from Ballyhay, so so Cork, big Cork connections there as well. Um, yeah, so I was born. It's my birthday tomorrow, so the twenty eighth of August, ninety one. Um, mum started to, to to feel like she might be going into labour and was watching the Rose of Tralee and after finishing watching the Rose of Tralee and a cork rose, um, Denise Murphy at the time was, was crowned, yeah. um, she went into uh, to the hospital in Limerick and I was born the following day on the 29th of August. So <laughs> she always thought she might have a rose in her hand. Oh my God. And actually when I mentioned that your mum was from Ballyhay, Jack from Ballyhay was on saying, what was your mum's maiden name? Because Jack wants to know, did he know her? Mooney. Mooney. Yeah, and really. do do you have relatives still in Ballyhay? There is some some of my mum's cousins, I believe, are still in Ballyhay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. What what has the week been like? I mean, obviously it was you know topped off last night by the wind. But looking back, reflecting on the week, was it a fantastic week? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, so we started off in the Glen Royal in Kildare, the Glen Royal Hotel last Monday. And I've just been treated like absolute royalty since then. Fantastic support. Arriving down to Tralee was obviously surreal and seeing all the volunteers and the people at Tralee being so supportive. We've just had the most fantastic time. So I think, speaking for the other girls, if I may, we've just had the experience of a lifetime. And any roses I have ever spoken to over the years, uh, Sinead, all talk about this connection of having friends for life. 
Yeah, I suppose it's kind of hard to, to believe when you look from the outside in, but I've never really experienced anything like the bonds and how quick you form them over the space of um, 10 days. But I think it's probably such a unique experience that you just um, you just uh, share it all together and just uh, really bond so quickly. And your green dress last night was stunning. We've already had a call in saying, would you ask Sinead, where did she get the dress? So there's another Cork connection for ah. you. So um, it's Sharon Gregory in Mallow. Ah, the wonderful Sharon Gregory. Yes, so she's actually a proud Limerick woman from Kilfinnan. She is. She, um, she has her, her studio there in Mallow for many, many years. So uh, it was very handy when I was working in Mallow General to be going over to Sharon for um, for fittings and things. So yeah, big Cork connection and uh, very happy to have gone to ECC and been living in Cork and it's obviously so close to home for me as well, so it's great. Yeah, and you're in, you're living in Adair, isn't it, at the moment as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I'm between between Cork and Adair, yeah. Okay, and junior hospital doc, a junior doctor in Mallow General Hospital, will you now take time off or when do you, uh, when do you expect to return to work? Yeah, so I was actually, you haven't been in Mallow since the end of July, so it was been off then um, just kind of doing short contract work this year that was always the plan just okay. for a little bit of travel and a little bit of work at the same time so that was the plan before this ever arose um, so not quite sure where we're going next but definitely very determined to continue working it's very important to me Okay you have a busy year though ahead as Rose Julie. Yes I know but I think you have to try and marry the two um, obviously worked very hard to get where I am so so I uh, want to do my best to maintain the two well together. Well done. Well, we're all very proud of you and we have claimed you as one of our one of our own, <laughs> I can just tell you now. Um, uh, enjoy the year because it's, it's, it's going to be magical and it'll go in the blink of an eye, don't you know? Yeah. Uh, but thanks a million. And once again, congratulations to you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Good, good, good afternoon to you. Bye-bye. That is uh, Sinead Flanagan, the 2019 Rose of Tralee. What a lovely, lovely lady. And well done to Sharon Gregory because that dress was... Uh, amazing! It was I, I, I. Looking at all of the dresses, I didn't realise it was one of Sharon Gregory's creations. But looking at all of the dresses, it was one of the ones that really stood out in the colour. That gorgeous bottle green was beautiful, and of course suited Sinead uh, so beautifully. So well done to Sinead uh, Flanagan and to all of the uh, family. It, uh, it's going to be a great, great year for her. Eighteen fifty three 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 one zero three. Keep your gardening questions coming in because I can see a lot of them coming in uh, for uh, Peter. Why there's still the, with the farmers? I the latest somebody saying what's happening with the farmers. Um, Jim in Clonakilty says, how come we can f- how come we can find out how much farmers get for beef at the click of a button, but no one can tell how much the factories get with injunctions in place. Let them arrest the farmers. Uh, people died for this uh, country. I'd hate to see any farmers getting arrested, though, uh, Jim. And I know the way people are feeling at the moment, and uh, beef farmers are feeling so hard done by and any of the ones when they were protesting who spoke to us spoke to us with such passion and then there was that Jack wasn't it that elderly farmer who joined us who was in tears talking about how tough life is at the moment trying to make a living living so I can understand why farm why beef farmers in particular like are just pushed to the end of their tether and, they, and they'll go to any lengths but I certainly don't want to see anybody get, get arrested the last we've heard is that there's three or four farmers uh, protesting at the APB site on the McCroom Road in Abandon even though the High Court granted an injunction uh, restraining groups of protesters from blockading their factories so I don't know does that mean I'd have to get onto the legal part, department? Does that mean that they, as long as they're not blockading the factory, they can protest, but just don't stop anybody going in? 
don't intimidate anyone you know don't be abusive to anyone which was what was alleged uh, was uh, happening Anthony says why is it that our farmers are being hit badly by prices our German masters that dictate everything to us are in a deal with South American companies which includes the destruction of the biggest oxygen supply of this planet that's the uh, the Amazon forest uh, to destroy our beef market but why aren't other European countries complaining says uh, Anthony uh, yeah, and you'd have to question the McCursor deal, wouldn't you? Everything With everything that is going on with the rainforests on fire and all of that, that's for sure. OK, um, I'm not, there's no, nobody holding on line one for me. No, no. Uh, OK, uh, 1850 We're going to take a break and we are back getting your gardening questions answered with Peter Dowd. C103 Anthems. Mornings from nine and evenings at seven. Cork's greatest hits. C103. And we're a little bit early uh, going to Peter. We're just having a problem uh, connecting with him. So it does give me an opportunity to mention the Bantry Fire Brigade are having a charity car wash. It's happening this Saturday from 10am and it's in aid of Bantry Bay Rugby Club and the Bantry Rowing Club. So if you want to get your car washed, head out to the guys and gals of Bantry Fire Brigade this Saturday because that's in aid of two very worthwhile causes. Yesterday when we were talking about Learn the Drivers and by the way we are going to be speaking with the Road Safety Authority about this clampdown on the tens of thousands of learner drivers who appear to be just renewing their learner permit repeatedly rather than taking their driving test. These are people that are on learner permits time after time after time. I think there's actually figures out that some people have done it up to four up to 10 times, I think, they've actually done it. They've actually renewed their learner permit rather than take the test. So there's this big push at the moment saying to people, you must at least try to sit your test. And I know people will say nerves and all of that uh, can get to people. And yesterday we mentioned the fact that 1,600 cars had been seized from learner drivers and these are people who were out driving and didn't have a fully qualified driver with them and they were impounded by the Gardaí and somebody said, was suggesting rather cynically is this a money making machine and how much does it cost if your car is impounded how much does it cost to get it back and how much money has been made so we took a look now I can't find because they would be impounded under the Clancy Amendment so it would be a different section of the Road Traffic Act but under the Road Traffic Act for example if you're driving without insurance and we assume it's probably the same it's just a different piece of legislation but the fines would be the same if your car is impounded the for the detention removal and storage of vehicles there is a charge of 125 euro for a car it goes to 250 euro for a heavy goods vehicle and then if you don't pick it up for every 24 hour period you leave it in it goes up by 35 euro now I'm assuming if your car was impounded and particularly if it was a young lad driving mammy or daddy's car without a qualified driver and the car was impounded mummy and daddy would be over fairly quickly to pick it up so we assume that it was picked up after one day so just based on those figures uh, 1,600 cars at 125 uh, euro uh, it would have brought in to uh, the exchequer 200,000 euro in that period of time 
the, I think it's a year and a half of which 1,600 cars have been uh, impounded. So it's 125 euro is what the charge is. 1850 And as I say, we will be doing more about this tomorrow on the programme because uh, Moya Doherty, the CEO of the Road Safety Authority, will be joining us to talk about learner drivers. Gardening on C103 with Bandon Co-op Garden Centres in Bandon, Kinsale and Enniskeen. For top quality plants, advice and value, think Bandon Co-op Garden Centres. C103. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Sorry, it's Moya Murdoch. I meant to say not Moya Doherty. My apologies. Uh, Peter Dowdell joins me. Good afternoon to you, Peter. I was just going to say, I'm sure Moya Doherty is somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> River dance, even. That was it. Uh, that thank was you very it, much. Yeah. Okay, right. Lots and lots of questions in, I have to say, including a great tip from a listener. If you are, are you into eating blackberries at the moment? There's wonderful very blackberries so. out very there. So, yeah. uh, Sheila says, not quite a gardening question, but a tip for people if you're eating blackberries. Only eat if the end has a pale green dot, which is attached to the bush. Any other colour means that there's a grub or a maggot inside yeah. it. I was always brought up to, to to believe that, like if it was grey or brown, that uh, there was a worm or something in it. I'm not 100 percent sure if it's true, but I've always gone with that advice. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, yeah. I certainly will be heeding it uh, as well. Okay, I've just spoken with a rose, as in the rose of Tralee, and my first question is about a rose. My roses are covered in black spots, says this listener. I have only one lot of roses on them, as I. I assume they mean flowers uh, is it too late to spray them or should I cut them back what would Peter suggest well this is uh, this is a huge question at the moment particularly because of the weather we've had this summer and I did do I mentioned this last week I did do a video on this topic for Facebook on the Irish Gardener a couple of weeks ago and judging by the reactions everybody is, is getting involved because it's had a huge amount of views and a huge amount of interaction so the first place I would direct you to is that video it's a three minute video and it shows you exactly how to, how to tackle the, the rose black spot and mildew and other fungal problems. The So I wouldn't be rushing out with a spray, in inverted commas, because you don't know what you're spraying on them. And a lot of these sprays, the chemical sprays, are very, very damaging. So understanding that it's a fungal infection is the first part of the jigsaw. So if you can create conditions within the rose bush 
aren't conducive to the development of a fungal infection in the first place, then brilliant. So in other words, good pruning. So to keep the bush good and open, you don't have crossing branches and millions of leaves in the centre with poor air circulation. So prune out. And the, 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 the short answer to the question is, no, I don't think it's too late to do any of this work. It's a fine time to do it if you have the infection. If you don't have black spot, don't bother pruning at the moment. But if you do prune it Yeah, because somebody else is saying, is it OK to start cutting back roses now? Angela wants to know. I would say trim them back. So if you if you've dead flowers or whatever and you want some more to come, give them a gentle trim, but it's far too early yet, I would okay. think, to give them their, their annual haircut. So with the black spot, prune them for good air circulation. Then in terms of spray, and I have to use the word, what you could do, uh, and it's quite effective, is mix milk and water, uh, one part milk to two parts water, just full fat, normal dairy milk, spray it on the rose, and that has very strong antifungal properties. And also uh, copper sulfate, my old, my old kind of go-to, it's a very uh, good organic, broad-spectrum fungicide. So with any of these fungal infections, you're better to try and remove as much of it by pruning it out as possible, mm-hmm. not just the infected leaf, the whole stem. Treat it then with either milk and water or copper sulfate and water. Feed it strongly or heavily with a good, like a Goulding's Rose food or the Liquid Nature Safe food, a good food to, to dive it on again, and you should still get flowers, particularly as I'm hoping, uh, it being September, we'll have a good month because we tend to in, in Ireland have a good yeah, month in September. Yeah, we do. We do indeed. And stay with roses because Tom in Middleton says, when can I move rose bushes as I want to renovate an old farmhouse and these are my late mother's roses. Um, can I pot them up? What do I need to do? Well, yes, you can, but he's right to ask the question. Don't dream of doing it now because you will risk losing them. If it's your late mother, you obviously want to treat them with TLC and to, to mind them. So wait till kind of November time, if if that's possible. You know, if the renovation works are starting tomorrow, you might just have to, to try your best. But if you can put off moving them, do until kind of November, December, January time. Cut them back very hard. So cut them back to within a foot of the ground. Um, it, their roses are kind of tap-rooted with very, some very small fibrous roots off them. So get as much, if not all, of the taproot as you can uh, into a, a new planting hole or into a very deep pot. Uh, they like to be deep more than wide, the pots, because of the taproot. And the important thing then when you're planting them again, be it in a pot or the open ground, don't plant them too deep. So where the root system meets the plant, if it was grown by cutting, without getting too technical, if it was grown by cutting, you won't see any graft union because it's just a cutting, but you still don't want to go deeper than the, the top of the root. If it's like um, uh, most roses that they were grafted or what's called budded, you will see that what we call a graft union, uh, just an inch or two above the root system. So you absolutely, it's absolutely essential that you don't bury that graft union. You'll see it if you go looking for it. It's quite sw- swollen. Uh, you'll see where, where it is. Um, what's below that union is the rootstock. I won't go into detail on it because it'll, <laughs> it's, it's very technical. What's above it is the rose bush that you want to keep. But you do not want to bury that graft union. So bring the soil surface just up to the, the top of the root and that's high enough. Okay, Mary and Bantry, what's eating the leaves of my rhubarb and how can I treat it? God, as a, I don't know, did you watch the Jeremy Clarkson ad where he says, if I had a euro for every yeah, time somebody... Yeah, who wants to be yeah. a millionaire, yeah. Well, if I had a euro for every time somebody's asked me about rhubarb this year, we'd be rich, wouldn't we, Trish, every week? Yeah, and it. it's the weather, is it? Well, the weather, I think, was responsible for a lot of it dying back earlier in the year. What's eating it, I would say, is most likely, probably not now, it's probably finished, but earlier, up to the last few weeks, would have been caterpillars, I would say, uh, would probably what have been eating it. Maybe slugs, well, in my experience, slugs tend not to see, well, I suppose they can eat the leaves of it, all right. Um, weather of which I wouldn't be too worried, because, you know, I mean, it's, if you haven't harvested,
carpeted by now, it's going to be dying back soon anyway. So I wouldn't be too worried about it. Um, but as to, to what's, on, what's eating it without seeing it, I couldn't say for definite. Okay. Hi, uh, Peter. We're giving our garden a badly needed tidy up. Is it okay to cut back our lilies now? Yes, provided they've um, died back and gone brown. So if they've got, if the foliage is still green, then no, because lilies are a bulb. Uh, so similar to the daffodils, tulips, anything like that, you want the the, the, the the nutrients and the chlorophyll in the in the stem and in the leaves to go back into the bulb, which is the food reserve for next year's lily flower. So let it die back naturally. Don't be in a mad rush uh, to, to get it tidied up and cleaned up. So if, if they've gone brown, you can clean them up and cut them back. But if not, leave it for another few weeks. Bob in Canturk said, I reseeded my lawn last year. I used lawn gold before and after seeding, but I'm still getting a lot of moss on my lawn. Why is that happening? Because, unfortunately, with the, with the, it's where we live. We live in a very beautiful country, but it's, pardon the pun, a perennial problem. Moss is a perennial problem because we have a warm and damp climate. So just putting it on before and after last year, like we're now six to 12 months later, we need to maintain it. We need to keep at it. Um, and I've, I was going to say a good article, but that would be very biased. I have an article in this Saturday's Examiner about what to do with the lawn for now. Uh, and I mentioned the lawn gold product because you do need to keep at it. It's a very good back to basics way to maintain good grass health and good lawn health, uh, which will keep moss at bay. It, the, the main trick, Trish, is twofold. You're maintaining the correct pH, which is slightly alkaline which means moss can't tolerate it, can't get a hold, or can't survive. But also, you're feeding the lawn, you're, you're directing the correct nutrient mix to the lawn for each season to, to make sure the lawn is good and healthy. Because, like I teach garden, gardening in Stephan uh, in the evening, and when I'm talking about lawn care, I always say the best way to prevent the moss and weeds getting into the lawn is by having a good, healthy lawn. So if you get the right nutrient mix to the lawn, during each season and maintain the correct pH for grass, moss will not be a problem. But it is constant. You do need to do it three or four times a year. Okay, Ellen has a number of questions, including agapanthus. Its flowers are beginning to die. Do I pull them out from the root or leave them to die back? Also, hostas, again, the flowers and the foliage dying. Do I cut them back? The, God, everyone's out tidying up, aren't I they? Containing in September, but the, the agapanthus blooms when they die, you don't need to pull them out. You can just let them die off and let them go to seed if you want. But if if for tidiness you want to, I would, wouldn't even. You're not putting the plant out by the root, or you're just taking the dead flower stem off. It's just a, a scissors or a secateurs to remove it. But it's really just for tidiness. There's, there's no absolutely no need to. Um, the and the hosta same same. It, the hosta is the, herb, the agapanthus, depending on the variety, is either evergreen are herbaceous, meaning that it'll die back for the winter. Uh, the hosta is herbaceous, meaning it will die back for the winter. So just let it die back naturally, let the growth go under the ground, and when it's all gone brown and, and untidy looking, then you can cut it back. Okay, and another question on lavender. <laughs> I have some lavender which are four or five years old. They are bark-type stems, maybe because of the age. Should I pull them out, or can they be cut back, if so, by how, how much? Also, I planted new lavender this year. When and how far back can I cut the new lavender back? Okay, well, I'll deal with the... the second part of the question first. So the newer the lavender. New lavender. Yeah. New, lavender tends to get woody and leggy and a bit unkempt in our climate. And I think it's because we kind of kill it with kindness. So if you look at where lavender is native to, it's native to the, the very warm and dry countries. You see it in Italy, Portugal, South France, uh, and it's loving it. But it's growing in, pardon the expression, but it's kind of growing in crap. It's 
growing in, in very free-draining, free-draining, sandy, gritty soil. And that's, that's what it likes. That's what it's used to. That's what it's from. We bring it over to Ireland. It's, it's been perfectly grown in a garden centre in a lovely pot full of compost. We put it into our garden. It has as much rain and water as it wants, nutrients. It's being fed, everything. And it just grows and grows and grows. So what we need to do to stop it from getting too woody and too leggy is to, to you know, regularly trim it. So I would say, Trish, and I would always say this, that most plants, if not nearly all plants, are very low, if not zero maintenance. It's all about putting plants in the right place. But lavender is one of these plants that does require a bit of maintenance. It's still not high maintenance. I mean, if it's three or four times a year, I wouldn't say that's high maintenance. But anyway, so trim it on below the flowers. The flowers should have probably have died by now or gone brown. So go to the bottom of the flower stem and then just into the foliage a couple of inches, making sure you're leaving plenty of greenery below where you're cutting. Uh, and do that about two or three times a year to keep it good and bushy and compact. Because when you do that, the new growth that's coming, instead of coming at the top of a, a two-foot-high plant, you've cut it back by a foot. So now it's coming from below where you've cut. So it has to be good and bushy. The growth can't be up too high. You're keeping it good and bushy. If it gets to the point of the first part of this question, if you get to a stage where the lavender is five or six years old and it's quite barky and quite woody, I would say the short answer is take it out, take it out and, yeah. and replant it because yeah. it won't respond well to a hard pruning, no. Okay, Anna, hi, uh, Peter. I would like to plant a birch tree this autumn. I would like Peter's advice regarding a native species. I'm lucky enough to have plenty of space, but I get the full force of westerly winds like so many of us here in West Cork. Thanking you. That's from Anna. The um, The... Some of the native species are my favourite of all of them and they will tolerate the winds, they will tolerate the exposure. And I would just look, you have Betula jacamontii, which is the Himalayan birch, which isn't native, but it's probably the, one of the more stunning, really white-stemmed ones. But in terms of native, you have uh, Betula pendula, which is the straightforward silver birch, which is the one you'll see growing uh, naturally in hedgerows, particularly in England, in fact, more so than Ireland, where the he- particularly in the south of England, if you, if you drive through the, the, the country roads of the south of England during the autumn, it's just magically with the white stems and the yellow foliage it's just gorgeous in some of the roads um, but they're native and those betula pendula straightforward to common silver birch will thrive in that condition and I wouldn't look any further you have betula pubescens then which is another one and there are a few more but betula pendula the straightforward silver birch is what I would go for Hi Peter and Patricia all my patio pots are finished blooming for this year and I'd like to ask what I can put into them now we have visitors that call around this time of the year and I'd like an instant splash of colour before the real autumn arrives it's a sheltered spot with sunshine from dawn to dusk thanks a thousand If you want an instant splash of colour I'm hesitating to say it because we're still in August and I just associate them so much with Christmas uh, it's cyclamen but cyclamen you could put cyclamen into the pots now go down to your local garden centre they'll have cyclamen and they'll have winter pansies that could give you colour from now right through the winter into next spring. So you could certainly look at them. Or you could also look at, when we say colour, we think obviously immediately of flowers, but we don't have to. You could look at things that have berries. There's, there's lots of different hypericum plants now of have, have lovely different berries. There's the, there's the mystical and magical range of hypericums. and they, That's colour. It's not flower colour. It's berry colour, but it's still colour and it's lovely. Um, but for flower, I think maybe look at the, the, the cyclamen and the winter pansies. And Barry says, hi, my newly planted box's hedge looks like it is blight. What would you recommend to fix it? 
Uh, but Boxlight is the problem. Now, the, big, the good news is it's not as big a problem as what everyone thought it was for the first couple of years and that you can get it under control. There's two products I'd recommend. I'd recommend one or the other, if you like. So one is the straightforward copper sulfate, which I was talking about earlier. Um, which, which, first of all, uh, Boxlight is in the soil and it's spread by rain spatter. Now, it's not spread by the wind so much as rain spatter. It travels in the soil. So if it's in your soil, we've obviously had a lot of rain this summer. Rain hits the ground and splashes it up onto the plant, and that's how we get it. So cleanliness and hygiene around the base of the plant is essential. So remove dead or diseased leaves from around the base of the hedge. Anything that's there, rake them up, or with a garden blower or a garden vacuum, take them away. Treat then the, the well, where are we, August? You could give it just a light pruning now, because it's getting late, but just a light pruning, again, to remove before you tidy it up, because obviously you've got to make more of a mess. Um, give it a light pruning to remove some of the infected leaves. Clean the leaves from around the base, then drench the area with copper sulfate mixed with water, the soil and the plant, um, or alternatively use a, t- a product called Top Boxes. Boxes is the, 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 the botanical name for box, so Top Boxes, it's an easy one to remember. Just if you're going to the garden centre, buy Top Boxes for box light, just have a look and just be aware there are two different Top Boxes. One is just a general feed and one is the blight control, so make sure you're getting the right one. Water it onto the plant. Either that or the copper sulfate, you should have good good, uh, good results. Okay, and Mary says, morning Patricia, just Peter, uh, what I should do with my lupin seeds as I'd like to plant them again next year? Fabulous. Well, if they're still on the plant, so in other words, if you haven't harvested them yet, wait for the seed pods to go kind of crinkly and black. Don't harvest them when the seed pods are still green because they're not ripe. So wait till they pop up. They will pop up with all of them on their own and then the wind and the insects and birds will take them. But you want, you want to get them before they do. So when the seed pods kind of go crinkly and black, pop them yourself or let them pop naturally. Uh, so first of all, cut the dead flower stem with the seed pods, with the secretaries, into the kitchen table or garden shed, newspaper out on the table, shake all the seeds onto the newspaper. Then you remove the chaff and the, 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 the seed coatings and all the rest. Just keep the seeds, or the seed pods rather, keep the seeds into an envelope and I would say plant them then in a seed tray or a little individual pot just about a quarter of an inch under the compost surface, dampen it uh, and keep them indoors so you can sow those seeds, I would say next spring in in the, the greenhouse uh, keep the compost quite damp they will germinate over a couple of months they won't take that long to germinate but it will have to be indoors but they will be two or three years before they get to flowering stage but they're well worth it. What a lovely thing to do Oh, lovely. Yeah, the, it's the a thing fantastic thing. The, the, the seed doesn't come through to type. So the wonderful thing is you could be taking them off a blue lupin or a red or yellow lupin and your seedlings could be all different colours, oh. white colours and everything. So it'll be lovely. Great surprise. A question for Peter. My flamingo tree trees are not yes. flowering at all this year. It actually looks like the branches are burnt. Last year they were lovely white pink flowers. Very poor this year. What could be the matter? I'd have to see a picture because okay, and I've just realised it's okay. There's up. been uh, there's been pictures sent on by uh, WhatsApp, so we'll get them to you afterwards, and then you can deal you can deal with that because I can't get them to you now while I'm on air with you. But we'll yeah. uh, we'll we'll arrange to get them uh, through to you. Uh, and this another question, listener says, uh, when can I transplant a rhododendron shoot that I have layered? Oh, perfect. So layering is a way of propagating, and it's, it's the way most rhododendrons are propagated. It's where, you know, if you, it happens naturally. So you know if you have a big rhododendron, yeah. and you'll see a stem, and it grows out, and it touches the ground, and then it grows up again. Where it touches the ground, it can, it can root into the ground. Oh, okay. okay? So then you, you cut it from the mother plant, and that's a layered. That's oh, layering. I see. Okay. 
or you, you can also do it in the air with aerial layering. But anyway, um, so the caller has obviously done this themselves. You can encourage it by pinning a branch into the ground, just to, uh, making a small cut incision into the bit that's in the ground to, to encourage rooting, uh, and then you have a new plant. And it's, a, it's an instant way to get well. It's not instant. It takes a few months. But once you've created the roots, it, it's a, a decent-sized plant immediately. Um, so when to sever it from the parent plant? Well, when it's developed a good root system all of its own, which obviously it has, uh, you could cut it now from the parent plant, but don't take it out of the ground yet. Don't take it out of the ground then until, I would say, November time, and then you can transplant it. But you could certainly sever it from the parent plant now, I think. Okay. All right. That's where we, uh, we wrap it up uh, for today. Uh, thanks for that, Peter. Thank you, Trish. Talk next week. And we'll talk again next week. And our apologies. I can see a huge amount of questions that we didn't get to. It seems like lots and lots of people are out doing their bit in the garden, which is uh, terrific. Uh, get out and enjoy as much as you can of it, even though we've got a wet kind of a, a week planned. But in between the showers, there is some sunshine sunshine forecast. I mean, certainly this afternoon, there's a little bit of sunshine forecast and it's going to be later into the afternoon that we're going to expect some showers. So whenever you get the chance, get out into the garden but that's where I have to wrap it up for today. My thanks to uh, John Paul McNamara for producing. We are going to be dealing with learner drivers and learner permits tomorrow when Moya Murdoch from the Road Safety Authority will uh, join us. We look forward to chatting to her. Back with you tomorrow at 10. Get weekly news, event updates and community information from across Cork with our regional reports on c103.ie. From Bantry to Buttevant to Hallow to Dunmanway and every area in between. We've got it covered. To listen, go to c103.ie and click Regional Reports or download the C103 app and click Podcasts. Regional Reports, only on C103. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.